Good morning. My, um, my parents are currently out of town because they're very in love. And uh, so you've got me. And uh, w- would you pray with me to start this one off? Just say a quick prayer. Uh, this will be, by my count, the last week of the sermon series on fear. Um, anyway, let's pray. Um, Almighty God, you are the Almighty God. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. There's a very curious passage in the 12th chapter of Luke, a passage Jesus speaks, and it reads like this. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The last two weeks, my dad and I have been covering fear. In in week one, I suggested that Christ has overcome all fear, which you could say is fear in a theological perspective. My dad last week suggested that fear is something that keeps us from acting in the way God would have us act. In that way, we could say uh, fear in the perspective of life. And what I would like to talk about today is what I've called fear by the book, which you could call fear in biblical perspective. If you're familiar with the biblical witness, maybe you've read it for some time, when someone talks about fear, I think there are a number of verses that quickly come to mind. Verses like Joshua 1.9, right? Be strong and courageous. Or in the Gospel of Luke, the, the angel of the Lord comes to Mary, and the first thing he says to her is, don't be afraid. And then he tells, him, tells her that she's going to be a single mother in first century Palestine. Or you might think of Jesus' world. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You might think of John the Evangelist, who in 1 John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Or you might think of St. Paul, who in 2 Timothy says, For the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-control. You could think of Jesus in Matthew 8, who says, O you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Or if you get to the end of the book, if you get to Revelation, there's that moment where John, uh, the revelator, says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So if you make it to the end of the book, evidently you make it to a place where there's no reason to be afraid anymore. And everybody said? Amen. And so the word on fear in the Bible is, don't be afraid. But I've noticed that there's another word on fear in the Bible, 
a word that appears perhaps just as often as don't be afraid, and that word is fear God. Words that both appear in Jesus' curious little teaching in Luke 12. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today, fear God. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase fear God, my head is full of images quicker than I know what to make of them exactly. I think about um, a group of what you call hellfire street preachers, and they show up to UVA every spring, and they stand in the amphitheater over by McCormick Road, and they hold a sign of a list of all the people that God hates, some of whom you can't really repeat in church, and they kind of yell and scream at the crowd, and the, yell, the crowd yells and screams back at them, and the whole point, I took them to lunch, the whole point, they tell me, is to make people afraid of hell so that they'll turn to God. But by the end of the day, when you have the street preachers in the Greek theater and you have the crowd on top of the hill, they're both screaming profanities at each other. And some of the things that the students say back to the people aren't very nice, and some of the things the people say back to the students aren't very nice either. So at the end of it, you just got two people yelling back and forth, and, and the people in the floor of the amphitheater, they start yelling at the, what they believe are so-called Christians at UVA, that if after you've accepted Christ, you've sinned, you're probably not a real Christian at all. One of them at lunch told me that there were probably six Christians amongst the 15,000 undergrads at UVA. I am not very good at math, but I don't really know where that statistic comes from. So when other people say the fear of God, that's what I think about. I think about these street preachers, hellfire street preachers in the floor of the amphitheater shouting at the undergrads. And so I decided I probably trust the book a little bit more than I trust them. So I went back to the book, and here's what I found. Uh, this is what I think the Old Testament has to say about the fear of God. The Old Testament has a bad rap. You know, like a lot of weird stuff happens. People fall into the earth, and a lot of people die, and God smote the Mechmechelokalites, and there's all these genealogies. And, and so I thought that when I went to the Old Testament, I would probably be slightly more scared than the people yelling at me in the amphitheater. But this is what I found. Psalm 34:11 says this. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then we're really nervous for what's going to come next. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, don't tell lies, turn from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Evidently, to the psalmist, the fear of God has something to do with peace. As Bono once sang in Psalm 40, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. The fear of God has something to do with praise. The fear of God has something to do with trust for the psalmist. And then he says in Psalm 134, but, th but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord and in his word, and I put my hope. There's a weird kind of joy in that psalm. I mean, isn't that weird? The removal of judgment, forgiveness, that brings the fear of the Lord. Isn't it kind of weird that like when I quoted First John earlier, and he says, you know, perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. Well, here, forgiveness, the removal of punishment, that has to do with fear, the fear of the Lord. Peace, praise, forgiveness, trust. These are the things that the Old Testament commends when it commends the fear of the Lord. On the fear of the Lord follows all of these things. 
Does anybody want to be without these things? I mean, would you prefer like a combative, demeaning, vindictive relationship? Which seems to me more or less like what the street preachers think God is like. But the fear of the Lord brings trust and praise and worship and forgiveness. That's a real, I, I don't really have a framework for that when it comes to my idea of fear. Unlike the fear that stops us from acting how God wants us to act, evidently, the fear of God drives us to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace and trust and praise and forgiveness and love, all these good things, they follow on only one fear, the fear of God. And so I kept reading in the book, and eventually you get to the New Testament, you know, if you can make it that far. And uh, I stumbled on this curious phrase, this curious teaching in Luke 12. I'd like to read it again in its entirety and cover the context a little bit. And so here is what the gospel writer of Luke says. Starting in 11 verses, uh, verse 53, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, awaiting to catch him in something he might say. Chapter 12, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or anything hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more, but I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. So, I'd like to put this passage in its narrative context, in its physical context, and in its literary context. In its narrative context, this, uh, this teaching comes at a turn in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus has already announced he's going to go to Jerusalem to die. So, the stakes are high, and it's, it's just been announced in 1153 and 54 that the Pharisees have a new policy on this Jesus guy, which is like, cut him off at the knees. Anything we can do to trap him, trap him. So, the stakes are high at these point in words. These words are tough words at an admittedly tough time. In the, in the physical context of this passage, you've got Jesus in the center and the 12 disciples around him and then a crowd of many thousands. Jesus is a superstar. You know those concerts where people like die trying to get into the concerts like the Beatle and the, uh, what was it? I wrote this down. December 3rd, 1979, 11 people died at a Who concert in Cincinnati because they heard the warm-up and they thought it was the real thing and they rushed the guards to get in and 11 people were trampled in the crowd. Minus the fatalities, that's kind of what's going on here. Jesus is a rock star. People are trampling over one another just to hear what he's saying. Can you see yourself in that crowd? Do me a favor. Pick where you're sitting. Are you in the many thousands, the like eavesdroppers that are sitting around Jesus? Are you in the 12, the 12 that have committed to follow him, come what may? 
Where are you in the crowd when Jesus is speaking? Have you committed to hear his every word and live on it? Or are you interested in Jesus? Both of you are welcome. If you're a couple hundred yards out to the left or you're right next to Jesus on the right, that's okay. Everybody can hear this teaching, but as he says, it is for his disciples first. If any of you are not followers of Jesus today, you're probably thinking, this is my worst nightmare. I decided to come to a church where the real guy has gone and his dopey little kid is up there preaching on the fear of God in hell. This is essentially as bad as American Christianity can get. But don't be afraid. Um, So if you're one of the eavesdroppers on Jesus, you are more than welcome here, but he speaks to his disciples first, not because they're the elite, but because they've committed to hear anything from him, which some of us have done here today. And the literary context of this teaching is between two other weird little teachings. So in the first one, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing's going to be said in the dark that's not going to come out into the light. Nothing's going to be said behind closed doors that won't be on the rooftops. In other words, everything matters, even how you act in private. The, the word for, uh, here it's translated, um, what has been whispered in the ear in the inner rooms. In Greek, uh, it's, it's the word tois tameois which is a word for room, but it comes from the verb to steward or manage. And and so what what it's kind of saying here is whatever you said in the places that you think you control will still be said from the rooftops. Control is an illusion in the face of God. Whatever you say behind closed doors or in the dark, it will be said from the rooftops. Everything matters, even how you act in private. And on the other side of the teaching, there's this other teaching about if you acknowledge the Son of God before man, he'll acknowledge you. And if you deny him, he'll deny you. In other words, everything matters, even what you say in public. Because you can have a spirituality that's all secrecy, or you can have a spirituality that's all show, and God is not particularly fond of either of them. At the center of this teaching on authenticity, on being truly a disciple in public like you are in private, being truly a disciple in private like you are in public, is this odd little teaching on the fear of God. The, the, the novelist Lawrence Stern said this, nobody who has felt it can conceive of what a plaguing thing it is to have a man's mind torn asunder by two projects of equal strength, both obstinately pulling in a contrary direction at the same time. Are you living a double life? Just a question. The Old Testament puts it this way, how long will you waver between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Are you living a double spirituality? And trust me, I'm not judging you. I'm a pastor's kid who went to middle school, so I know all about a double life. (laughs) And it's exhausting. So if you're exhausted from a double life, hear this teaching from Jesus. And so... Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, isn't it a real friend who tells you the truth? Don't we all believe that? Jesus is going to tell the truth. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. 
The Bible, the book, Jesus himself commends the fear of God. And this really beat me up this week. Has Jesus become a hellfire preacher? By this point in the Gospel of Luke, has Jesus become the kind of preacher that I have feared my entire life? As a pastor's kid, as a struggling Christian, oftentimes in the world, has Jesus become the hellfire preacher? Is all the grace gone? I'm assuming that some of you are thinking that right now, and I continue to believe that's a fair question. But even with the uncomfortability it causes us, we've got to sit with it, at least for a minute, because after all, it is in the book. Don't fear death. Don't fear those who can destroy the body, he says. On the backswing, Jesus gets rid of, of the most important fear in all of human history, the fear of death. You know the crazy things we do to avoid death, how much money we spend in the medical industry? And Jesus doesn't even give it like two sentences. He's like, don't be afraid of death. Instead, do this thing. And you're like, blah, 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 blah. I feel like that deserves more time, kind of like more comfort and more assuaging. Uh, what, would, what would you do if you weren't afraid of death? Um, Alex Honnold is a uh, free climber whose amygdala does not, pro does not process fear correctly. So um, there was a study done where they put him in an MRI scan and they showed him gruesome images of like heights and people in pain and all the normal people in the study, their amygdalas lit up like a Christmas tree. But Alex seemed relatively bored. He simply doesn't process fear. And so Alex can do stuff like this. Nope. <laughs> and Alex can do stuff like this. And Alex can do stuff like this. I can't, but um, <laughs> what would you do if you weren't afraid of death? Like, what would you do if you removed the root fear? What, would you, what adventures would you go on if you weren't afraid of the fear to which every other fear is indexed? After all, isn't that the only reason to be afraid of people? Don't be afraid of those who can kill your body. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God. I noticed something here that I have not noticed before. It doesn't say fear hell. It says fear God. The word for hell is the word in Greek, Gehenna. Gehenna uh, is the Greek version of the Hebrew phrase, Gai ben Hinnom which means the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. No one really knows why it's named this, and today it's a very, very pleasant place. It's this little valley that you can go on a pleasant walk on south of Jerusalem. But back then, it was a burning pile of trash. So the city of Jerusalem would dump its trash into the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, and so the fires always kept raging. And the reason it became a trash pile was because Josiah condemned it as a cursed place because the Israelites had sacrificed children there to the god Molech. So the background to the word fear is this, this history in Israel where they had sacrificed children to an idol and they condemned the place as cursed so it wasn't worth anything more than burning trash. Nowhere in the Bible does God command the, the sacrifice of children. And a couple people are thinking of the Abraham story. Just remember, he doesn't actually kill him. In the end, God himself provides the ram. Remember that? 
So, so there's this background to hell. Hell is the place that is cursed. It's cursed in association with child sacrifice, and it's not worth anything more than burning trash. Jesus doesn't say, fear that place. Jesus says, fear the one who can make that place a reality. I think Jesus is being frank about the magnitude of God's power. In Revelation 116 and 120, we get this image of Jesus where he's holding seven stars in his hand. Do you know how big the sun is at its equatorial diameter? 160,000 miles long. And that's not even the biggest star we know of. We thought for a while the biggest star we knew of was Canis Majoris. And if the calculator on my iPhone is correct, it is 1.2 billion miles long. It's 1,420 times our sun. You know, if we were a mile closer to our sun, we would all just die? And now, there's a bigger star than Canis Majoris, and I think it's called Scuti, but I don't really know how to pronounce S-C-U-T-I, Scuti, Scudda, mm. Anyway, that one is 1.468 billion miles wide at its, at its equator. It is, is 1,708 times our sun, and Jesus has seven of them in his hand. I think Jesus is just being frank about God's power. I, I worked for the Boy Scouts for a summer. I'm not a Boy Scout. I just needed some money, and a friend of mine registered me under a troop that doesn't really exist. But uh, no one found out about it, and I fit in really well. And, um, <laughs> and they had this old woman named Cheryl who was like a thousand and had the voice of a seagull. And she taught... <laughs> she taught like marksmanship. And you know, you could hear her from across the camp. She'd go, aim, fire. That's that really what it sounded like. And, and the Boy Scouts kept saying this thing up on the, up on the uh, marksman's range, don't point a gun at anybody, whether the thing is loaded or not. It was like a basic rule. It's like the first thing you learn about guns being a Boy Scout. Unless the barrel is over here and the stock is over there, and there's no chance that, like, you actually have to disassemble the gun before they're comfortable, like, looking down the barrel to make sure it's okay. Loaded, unloaded, safety on, safety off, you never point that thing at anybody. Am I right, Mike Ferrugio? I'm 100% correct. Thank you, Mike Ferrugio. Power is just power. Raw you in the face of raw power, what are you going to do? Elijah, or Isaiah, in, in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 says, I saw the Lord. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And when he sees the image of God, all he can say is, woe is me, I am ruined. That's all he's got in the face of a holy God. Power is just power. And Jesus, I think, is being frank about what God's power can do. God has the power to make Gehenna a reality. And he does, and he does it in the cross. I have wondered my whole life why the cross is associated with hell, why we think that because Jesus was on the cross, death, hell, and the grave has been overcome, and I finally figured it out, and I figured it out because Jesus reenacts the curse of Gehenna. He is the son who is wrongly sacrificed, and Jesus comes through the wrongful rite of child sacrifice. He overcomes the curse. He overcomes death, hell, and the grave because he overcomes the actual word for what hell is to his original hearers. 
Jesus is the wrongly sacrificed beloved son. And on the other side of the resurrection, he has shown that Gehenna, that death, hell, and the grave have been overcome. Jesus stands in our place. You will misread the cross if you think the cross is God going, like, if you're not careful, I'll do this to you. The point of the cross is that Jesus does it instead. The point of the cross is you can be 10 feet away from it, and he's the only person that's going to be taking the heat. The cross is hell on earth, and Jesus goes through it. The cross is hell on earth, and it's Jesus that overcomes it. God doesn't crucify somebody. God doesn't crucify anybody. God crucifies himself. God stands in our own place. He takes our own weight. He's the one who takes the pain of hell to make a way through hell. It's through the cross, it's through Gehenna, that we're forgiven. With you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. The reality of the broken world has to be dealt with, and it is dealt with in the cross. The cross is not arbitrary, punitive punishment. It overcomes the actual logic of brokenness, of curse, of wrongful ritual, of child sacrifice. It overcomes the tragedies of the world. And one Friday afternoon in 30 AD, Jesus takes the whole weight of, God's, of the brokenness of this world. He brings it before God. And one Sunday morning in 30 AD, he walked out of the grave and it was finished. This is why Christians believe that Jesus' resurrection means eternal life. It's because we trust on God's word that what Jesus of Nazareth did 2,000 years ago, God will also do for us. That Jesus literally went through hell, hell on earth, hell in hell, and made a way. The resurrection takes all the power of God. The resurrection makes it clear that ultimately God's power is through the cross towards resurrection. It's the same fear that apprehends our forgiveness. It's the same fear that gives birth to praise of God. It's the same fear that leads to trust in God. It leads to forgiveness. The same God that cast Jesus into hell and brought him back out, all for our sake, is the God that's worth praising, the God that's worth trusting, the God whom we love, the God that's forgiven us. Some of you probably feel like you're in hell on earth today. In a room this size, somebody's got to be there. There are people there in transit ministries, and we've never broken 40 people at one group, and that was a social event. Someone here feels like they're going through hell on earth. Someone does, and he can resurrect you. When we come out of hell, we don't come out barely alive. We come out resurrected. God can bring you out of hell. God sees you there. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. <laughs> I like, hope so. God never forgets. Don't be afraid. God never forgets. The word uh, for sparrow here, the word for sparrow in Greek is struthos. 
The word for sparrow here is struthios, little sparrow, sparito, if you will. God doesn't forget the smallest bird. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. I know a lot of you right now are thinking, oh, the hairs on my head are numbered. God knows me so well. And you're thinking about this psalm where David says, God has numbered the hairs on my head. That psalm doesn't exist. I swear, I looked for it. In Psalm uh, 69.4, David says, my number, oh no, there it is. In Psalm 69.4, David says, my enemies outnumber the hairs on my head. In Psalm 40.12, David talks about his sins outnumbering the hairs on his head. The phrase, the hairs on my head, is not God loves me because I am beautifully and wonderfully made. The hairs on your head means God sees me in my distress. When my enemies are too much for me, when my sin is too much for me, he can still count the hairs on my head. He sees me even there. As much as you are beautifully and wonderfully made, you are still going through hell on earth, and God can see even that. While you're in hell on earth, he can still count the hairs on your head. You know how easy it is for hair to burn? God can still count them. God never forgets. Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. God and Jesus overcame a world that's so broken, it sometimes think God wants child sacrifice. When, when I was a little kid, uh, my room was across the hall from my parents, and all my siblings and I, we'd crawl into bed, and, and uh, we would go, come pray for us! And uh, my parents would walk down the hall, we could always tell who was coming by the footprints, and they would pray for us while we were in bed. And uh, they'd pray for us, and they'd leave the room, and then, you know, every once in a while, one of us would go, Dad? Yeah. Are you there? Yeah. What did we want? We just want to be seen by our parent when it's dark. Even after you've been prayed for and you're in bed, you just want to know, Dad, are you there? Even the hairs on your head are numbered. You are worth more than many sparrows. I'm going to call the worship team up now. Aren't you glad that God is God? God is so giving, he'll give even his own self. He has the power to make hell real, but his power always ends in resurrection. You know, the punchline is the in the gospel is that the whole world gets resurrected. Do you know that? That's the image at the end of Revelation 21 and 22. It's not that all the righteous people, they get to come back. It's the whole world gets resurrected in Jesus Christ. A new Jerusalem comes out of the sky. God's power for resurrection is for the whole world. We all know that phrase in the Proverbs, that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. I'm sure we've heard many, many sermons on it. The fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Through the power of hell towards the resurrection, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. So, what do you want to learn next? Would you pray with me? Almighty God, you are the Almighty God. There is no one else like you. Nobody else has your power. Nobody else has your purview. Nobody else has a heart like yours, but we pray that you would give us a heart like yours, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who was resurrected in hope from the dead for us.
God, I pray that you would remove the fears that paralyze us and stop us. I pray that you would remove the fears that keep us on going on adventures with you. Lord, I pray that the fear of you would lead us into adventures that we never could have imagined, adventures of knowledge, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge, and adventures that lead in the resurrection of the whole world. We are trusting you to bring us into the resurrection of the whole world where we can stand before you. And like Isaiah says at the end of the passage, we can say, Lord, here I am. Be with us, God, today and tomorrow and all the days after that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand with me. Welcomed in to the courts of the King, I've been ushered into your presence. Lord, I stand on your merciful ground, yet with every step tread with reverence. Let's sing that again. Welcomed in. To the courts of the king, I've been ushered in to your presence. Lord, I stand on your merciful ground, yet with every step tread with
Sing praises to you. 